Thank you, Jane, and welcome, everyone. Uh, today is a very special concert. Earlier this morning, we dedicated our uh, new grand piano to uh, the church, and uh, uh, one of my uh, co-committee members will give you some information about uh, how we came about to get this piano, some information about Cunningham, and some history as far as where they got this from and how it was refurbished. But, um, you know, in true Presbyterian fashion, we formed a committee and went out and shopped for a piano. <laughs> and um, it, this is what you see before you. And we hope that this is the first of many events that we can host here. Obviously, this is very special, and we feel really privileged to be able to bring to you uh, Dr. Harder. And we will introduce her shortly after, um, after Bill's program. But um, just a few housekeeping items before we get started. Whatever type of cell phone you have, please make sure it is set to silent, vibrate, off, whatever, so it does not distract you or anyone sitting around you. Um, this will just be a, um, a one, there will be no intermission in between. Deborah will just do her performance for all of you. And I don't want to say anything because if you've never seen this before, you've never heard her before, I don't want to give away what she's going to present because it's remarkable and it's very special. Uh, after Deborah's finished, if you would all like to walk across the hall, we have a reception set up, um, uh, just a light reception because, you know, it is close to dinner hour, but we would love for you to come over and meet us, um, introduce yourself to Deborah. Uh, she's brought some CDs with her, so if you love what you hear, you'll have an opportunity to take something home with you. So um, without further ado, I'd like to introduce Bill Mockley. I was just here to say a few words about the piano itself. This is a uh, Mason and Hamlin. And a lot of people say, well, you mean it's not a Steinway? Well, Mason and Hamlin and Steinway were kind of competitors for a long time. This company started in 1850, and they got into making upright pianos and then started making really great grand pianos, especially when a, a man named George Getz joined uh, Mason and Hamlin. I think Mason was originally a, I think he was a guy who wrote uh, hymns for ch church choirs and stuff like that. And, Hamlin was the engineer, but anyway, uh, then this guy Getz joined them and they became this top-knop engineering firm and started making these great pianos that everybody loved. In the 20s, Rachmaninoff, Serge Rachmaninoff, maybe you've heard of him, uh, Maurice Ravel, these were their favorite pianos, was the Mason and Hamlet, not the Steinway. Um, so um, this piano was made in 1930, around that time, sort of the... Uh, the golden age for them. Uh, later, as it got into the 60s and people, tastes changed, they went out of business. Although they've recently uh, come back into business and now you can buy a very expensive piano for Mason and Hamlin uh, again. Um, so we were lucky enough to find this one that had been refurbished by the Cunningham Company, which is in Germantown. And they're themselves a very storied company that have a very deep past in uh, pianos. And uh, we went down there, as Jenny said, as a committee and uh, played a lot of different pianos, including Steinways. And then we found this, this baby, and it looked beautiful, and it sounded beautiful, and uh, we kind of fell in love with it. And so we decided we had to get it for a church, and we did a fundraiser, and we bought it for the church. And uh, now um, we said we have to have a concert to break it in. Um, so even though it's been here a little while, <laughs> 
Uh, this is our first big, uh, really nice concert, just so showcasing our uh, Mason and Hamlin, um, I think it's called a Model BB uh, Grand Piano. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. And one last thing before I introduce um, Deborah. We did, um, part of our dedication this morning was a plaque that was put together. And it's up here on, um, on the altar, but we will take it into Fellowship Hall and we'll have it placed. So if you're interested and you want to take a look at that, um, it outlines the people that were instrumental in helping uh, fund and bring this piano to you. So without further ado, I would like to introduce Dr. Deborah Lou Harger. Good afternoon. Can everybody hear me? How are you all doing today? Good. I'm so glad you're here. It's a little cold out there, but you can cozy up and listen to some beautiful music. I'm very excited to share this program with you, and I'm very honored to inaugurate officially this piano for the church. Many thanks to the committee for inviting me and to all the hard work that must have gone into raising money for this instrument. As you heard Bill mention, it's a refurbished Mason and Hamlin, one of the great names in piano manufacturing. It's still made in America. Very well known for its bright tone throughout the entire instrument. So I hope that it served you for many years here and brings you lots of beauty and joy. And I hope that the divine spirit of the composers that I'm gonna share with you, can you hear me? Louder, uh, louder will come through today. A little bit about me, I'm a doctor with, um, who went into music, so I have a medical background and a musical background. And as I was researching the lives of the great composers, and I was talking with my husband, who's also a physician, it struck us how many of these really great composers, the ones we consider the titans of Western music, were very ill. Before the age of antibiotics, many of them died young of infectious disease. Think of Mozart, dead at 35, Schubert, 31, and the other ones who lived a little bit longer suffered from debilitating illness, many of them. So I asked myself, how is it possible for these composers to write such great music, which takes a lot of energy, focus, and determination how could they do that when they had symptoms that would keep most of us in bed? And the corollary question, did being sick somehow shape their art? Pretty interesting. So to start the exploration, I went back through my research and found that the first composer that would be interesting to talk about and hear was Hildegard von Bingen. She was a remarkable woman, born around the time of the First Crusades, so way back in medieval Germany. She was the daughter of a rather wealthy family who had a lot of kids. So if that was your situation back then, you were sort of expected to give up some of your money and some of your kids to the church. And this is what happened to Hildegard. She entered the local Benedictine monastery when she was only 13 years old. By 30, she was running the female division of that monastery. And she was also a doctor, so she treated a lot of ailments in the community, everything from infection to reproductive problems to gout. She herself suffered from a medical problem, 
Throughout her life, Hildegard was overtaken by bouts of weakness that would leave her bedridden for days, sometimes weeks. They would begin with a blinding white light, followed by an excruciating pain or pressure in her head. Scholars today think she may have suffered from a form of epilepsy or migraine. Now during these episodes, she had what she considered spiritual visions, but she kept them to herself because in those days, if you claim to have divine communication, you could be burned at the stake. However, she was so influential that the Pope granted her permission to write down what she had seen and heard. So that was in the days when people, of course, didn't have the printing press, so every book had to be handwritten on parchment. She wrote 13 books, and they all survive in different museums or monasteries around Europe. Most of them are religious tracts or histories of the saints, that kind of thing. Two of them are books about medicine, and they provide a very fascinating look into the world of medieval medicine and ailments and what their theories were back then. But one was a book of music, because on top of everything else, Hildegard was a composer. She wrote 72 Gregorian chants for the female choir of her church. And they were different from what the male composers wrote. They were wider in range and had a bigger emotional scope. I've taken the liberty of transcribing one of her Ave Marias for solo piano. And you can imagine a female choir singing and their voices rising heavenward in a stone cathedral. Hildegard describes Mary, because she wrote her own words too, not as a placid Madonna, but as a strong woman who slays the serpent of evil by giving birth to Christ.
not far from where Hildegard lived and worked, about half a millennium later, a young man called Ludwig was born into a very musical but highly dysfunctional family in Bonn, Germany. His father was a professional singer, but an alcoholic. And despite the turmoil this caused in the family, young Ludwig von Beethoven was, well, his talent was recognized, it was so obvious, and it was nurtured and developed. He became a marvelous piano prodigy, as well as a budding composer. But as is often the case with children of alcoholics, he felt very responsible for his other family members. It wasn't until his parents died and his two younger brothers were fairly well settled, he felt he could leave his native hometown. And he made his way to Vienna, which was the, the uh, musical capital of the world at that time. Now what set Beethoven apart from all the other young pianists who wanted to do the same thing was his amazing ability to improvise. He could sit at the piano and create works of such spontaneous beauty that people would burst out into loud sobs. He was very popular, you know, he could play at parties and uh, publishing houses of which there were many in Vienna were all bidding on the right to publish his work. He had a lot of friends and his friend Czerny, who was also his student, wrote that at this time of his life, in his late 20s, Beethoven was full of good humor, mischief, and jokes. And I'm going to play you a piece from this period of his life. It's the marvelous final movement to an early sonata of his, opus 10, number two, in F major.
same time Beethoven wrote that marvelous, fun composition, something very unfun happened to him. He began hearing a strange roaring sound in his ears and a ringing that plagued him. He loved taking walks in the countryside, and he often wrote music in his head. Sometimes he would take along a friend for company. One day when he was out walking in the Vienna woods, his friend said, isn't that a beautiful melody that Shepard is playing over on that hill on his homemade flute? Beethoven nodded his head, but he could not hear the flute. And although he denied it as long as he could, it was clear that he was losing his hearing. Now hearing music was Beethoven's entire world. The thought of not being able to hear his art plunged him into such despair, he contemplated suicide. And this is famously described in the Heiligenstadt Testament, which is a letter he wrote to his brother saying, the only thing that was keeping him from taking his own life was his art. He said, I cannot leave this world until I've expressed everything I have inside of me. Now, there are a lot of theories about the cause of Beethoven's hearing loss. They're pretty crazy, but the most agreed upon diagnosis today is autosclerosis, which is thickening of the bones of the middle ear. Ironically, it's asymptomatic in most people. It's a genetic disorder. But what is agreed upon is that Beethoven, who was very proud, was extremely ashamed of not being able to hear. So he couldn't stand being in social situations. Not being able to understand what somebody else said was so embarrassing for him that he withdrew and he became very isolated, relying on a smaller and smaller circle of friends. He also started having severe physical problems with many different organ systems involved. Toward the end of his life, and he lived only into his mid-50s, he started showing signs of liver failure. And his final days were miserable, racked by severe abdominal pain, probably from pancreatitis, he became jaundiced. His doctor had to drain gallons of acidic fluid from his belly due to liver failure. When he died, uh, an autopsy was performed, and he was found to have macronodular cirrhosis of the liver. It could have been caused by alcoholism. Remember, his alcoholism ran in his family, possibly an autoimmune disease, and possibly hepatitis. Now think of Beethoven growing deaf, being isolated, depressed, pain in great pain, and let's hear what he composed. I'm going to play you one of his final piano sonatas. This is his great Sonata in A Major, Opus 101. It has four movements, or four chapters to a book, I like to think of that. The first movement is famous for its beautiful melodies. The second movement is a joyous, boisterous march, which inspired Robert Schumann. The third movement is very short, and it's extremely sad. Beethoven had experienced great suffering in his life, and he empathized with other people who were suffering, and you can hear this in this music. The first movement reappears, that beautiful melody, and then something wild and crazy happens in the final movement. You'll have to listen and hear, because he really stretches the boundaries of music as it was known at that time. It's my theory that because Beethoven was being engulfed in silence, he was almost immune 
to the musical conventions of the day. And that gave him the freedom to take music where it had, had never gone before. This last movement is still kind of a shock to hear. By the way, it was dedicated, the entire sonata, to a female student of his, Dorothea Artman, who apparently was the finest interpreter of her works. And when he sent this sonata to his publisher, he said, make sure to put on the cover, very difficult to play. <laughs>
Pretty wild and crazy, huh? <laughs> now, like Beethoven, Frederick Chopin was also a piano prodigy from a young age, as well as a great creative talent. And he left his native Warsaw, Poland, for the musical capital of the world at that time, when he was a young man, had moved to Paris. So he left home before he was 20 years old, and he never went back to Poland again. Now, he would have loved to have been a concert pianist, but his tone was so weak, it could not project in a hall. However, he still made a name for himself because, like Beethoven, he could improvise works of such beauty that people were astonished. He created harmonies that had never been heard before. Now, unfortunately, weakness ran in his family. His younger sister, Emily, died of a pulmonary disease when she was only 14. And Chopin, after playing a, a short etude, for instance, in public, would have to be carried to a stagecoach, which was waiting for him. This was not normal behavior for an 18-year-old healthy male. As he grew older, he suffered from frequent pneumonias. He became feverish, very short of breath. He grew barrel-chested, which means he probably had some um, difficulty breathing, basically like a pulmonary, chronic pulmonary disease. He had a lot of abdominal complaints. He could tolerate very few foods, so he had a very restricted diet. And toward the end of, his, end of his life, as he was teaching piano, which was his main source of income, he couldn't even sit next to the piano to, to work with his students. He had to lie down on a couch and teach them from a reclining position. At the end of the day, he would have to be carried upstairs by a manservant and put to bed. So he was just in terrible shape. Now, a lot of his students adored him, and one of them in particular, a woman called Jane Sterling from Scotland, she thought she would help him out by arranging a concert tour for him in Scotland. So he went, and unfortunately the weather was horrible, and he, it was just too much for him. He came home thoroughly exhausted to Paris and passed away by the age of 39, so young. And he had insisted that they perform an autopsy on his body because he felt the doctors never told him what was wrong. They could never really make sense to him. And indeed, when the pathologist opened him up, he discovered that, that Chopin did not have tuberculosis, which is, was rampant at the time, was the most common diagnosis for a pulmonary infection and wasting, which Chopin had. But the doctor said, I have never seen any lungs like Chopin had. And it's thought today that perhaps Chopin suffered from a form of cystic fibrosis. I'm going to play you two compositions of Chopin. One of them is a fairly early nocturne or night piece. And I want you to listen for the mysterious melody and notice that in every piece of Chopin, no matter how poetic or lyrical, there's always an inner core of grit and steel. And you can hear that in this piece. Then I'm going to play you one of his final compositions for piano. It's the Scherzo, number four in E major. Scherzo in Italian means joke. And there are a lot of practical joking qualities and playfulness in this scherzo. But there's also a sense of melancholy in the metal section. And underlying it all, this great sense of noble determination, as if Chopin is saying, Yes, my body is failing me, but nothing can contain my creative spirit.
There's just one word for that, genius. <laughs> the last part of our program comes over to America, and we're going to meet Scott Joplin. He was the first African-American composer to write a blockbuster hit. He was born a few years after the Civil War, and he, his father had been a slave, so just think about that. His mother was a housekeeper, and she was determined that all the Joplin children, who were quite talented, received training. So Scott was taught by a German music teacher who had settled in his hometown in Missouri. When he was about 30 years old, he wrote a song called The Maple Leaf Rag for the Maple Leaf Club, and that went on to be a huge bestseller. It sold about half a million copies of sheet music a year. Because back in those days, if you wanted to hear a hit tune, you actually had to go get the music and play it yourself. <laughs> Things were a little tougher for people back then. Um, and he was known as the king of rag because he wrote in a popular style called ragtime. But he elevated that style because of his German music training. I believe many people think he has um, harmonies that are similar to Franz Schubert in his music, for instance. Unfortunately, around the same time that Joplin wrote the Maple Leaf Rag, like so many artists, writers, musicians, and people of that era, he contracted syphilis, which did not have a cure at that time. They didn't know about penicillin. Um, you know, that wouldn't come till about 40 years later. And he was one of the unfortunate souls whose immune system allowed the disease to progress to its final and tertiary stage which means the central nervous system was involved and he displayed memory loss as well as loss of motor control. He ended up dying, not able to recognize a soul, and they said it was very sad to see the once dignified pianist flail uncontrollably at the keyboard. He was buried in a common grave at the age of 49. I'm going to play you one of his beautiful ragtime pieces written quite late in his life. When he was beset by money troubles, he was disappointed that his operas could not be produced, mostly because of racial prejudice. He couldn't find a backer for them. And he was showing some of the signs of his disease. It's called Solace, a Mexican serenade, and it was made popular in the 1970s, more recently, in the movie The Sting. If you've seen that with Robert Redford and Paul Newman, you'll recognize this tune. And I think you can hear in the beautiful melody and the lilting rhythms what music meant to Joplin. It was his solace.
For our final composer of the afternoon, we'll turn to George Gershwin. He was the son of Russian immigrants born at the turn of the 19th to 20th century in New York City. And he also was classically trained, but the sounds of popular music and Tin Pan Alley were just too enticing for him. And he wrote for popular idiom, starting with vaudeville, then Broadway, and then finally film. He wrote over 800 popular songs. Many of them have made it into the great American songbook. You'll recognize so many of his wonderful songs. And he was one of the few geniuses who could successfully cross over into serious concert music as well. In his Rhapsody in Blue, a totally inspired composition, his Concerto in F, and a masterful opera, Porgy and Bess. Now, in 1931, George and his brother Ira, who was his lyricist, moved out to Hollywood to start writing for the film industry. And at first, everything was going great. George was writing hit after hit. He was very popular at parties because he could sit at the piano and play for all the movie stars. And uh, he was playing tennis every day in the California sunshine, making a lot of money, and things just couldn't be better. But in 1937, he began complaining of a strange smell of burning rubber that just wouldn't go away. And then it would disappear. One day when he was performing his own concerto with the Los Angeles Philharmonic, he blanked out at the keyboard for about 10 seconds, which is an eternity when you're on stage. He also became very irritable, and that was odd because he was always so good-natured. When he went to the doctors, the doctor said, well, the stress of Hollywood and the very fake environment is causing you to have these symptoms, so don't worry about it, just try to relax. That didn't seem to help, and in the summer of 1937, his brother Ira came over to his house and was alarmed to find that George had been in bed all day. When he went to get George out of bed, George collapsed. He was rushed to Cedar sinai Hospital, and some neurologic tests performed, and he was taken to surgery, and a large tumor, a glioblastoma multiforme is the official name, very aggressive brain tumor was found in the right temporal lobe of his brain, and he died a couple of hours later, not yet 37 years old, far too young. To end my program, I'm going to play three pieces by George Gershwin. The first is a concert piece Written quite early, he premiered it himself at the uh, Roosevelt Hotel in LA. Then I'm going to play you one of his last songs that he wrote. It's called Love Walked In. And I think you can hear in the beautiful song that he has not lost any of his powers. It's written in the last year of his life. And finally, to end on an upbeat note, I'm going to play a difficult virtuoso transcription written by my teacher, Earl Wilde, of Gershwin's fascinating rhythm. I think you can hear in their stories and in the music that cre they created that illness could not keep down any of these composers. In a way, music was a way they could transcend their suffering. And what compelled them to keep on going? As is often in the case, Beethoven, who could have been a great playwright or poet, I think he put it the best. He said, from my earliest childhood, it has been my fervent desire to serve poor, suffering humanity by means of my art. It was this desire to serve through their art that kept these composers going. Disease could not silence their voices, 
It could only transform them.
we've been transformed. Oh my goodness, what an afternoon of absolute joy. We have enjoyed the mastery at the keyboard. We have enjoyed hearing what an instrument can truly do. But we have been educated. You have shared with us situations that were so tragic in the lives of such great composers. And yet we have benefited from all that they did. We thank you, Deborah, for all the gift and technique that you brought to us this afternoon. What a joy. so tickled that all of you came out today and what an exciting afternoon I hope you'll extend it a bit further by coming into the fellowship hall come greet Deborah I know you're excited as I am so let's go say hello to her in the fellowship hall say hello to each other and have a little bit of refreshment thank you all for coming today what a pleasure